Acts chapter 3, and I want to open up with a word of prayer that comes from the prayer journal of President George Washington. Mm-hmm. So would you bow in prayer with me? Grant, Father, that we may hear thy word with reverence, and that we might receive it with meekness, mingle it with faith, and that it may accomplish in us, gracious God, the good work for which thou hast sent it. Bless our families, our friends, and our country. Be our God and our guide this day and forever. For his sake, who lay down in the grave and arose again for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Don't ever, ever let anybody say we were not founded as a country on the principles of the Judeo-Christian faith, because we were. Lesson number nine, greater than silver or gold. What is greater than silver or gold, ladies? Salvation in Jesus Christ. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries is to give certain grace gifts to believers with the intention that those gifts be used to edify, to lift up the body of Christ. The spiritual gifts that each and every one of us are given, and you do, if you're born again, you do have a spiritual gift, at least one, prominent one. They are for us to minister to one another, and by doing so, to build up and encourage our fellow believers. Well, the Holy Spirit also gave certain sign gifts, and they were not given for the intention of building up the body of Christ, the church. But they were given for the purpose of confirming the message of the gospel to unbelievers, particularly Jewish unbelievers. During the Lord's earthly ministry to Israel, he repeatedly performed miracles, didn't he? Sign gifts. And they were for the purpose of confirming that the words he spoke were truly the words of God the Father. He said in John chapter 10, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe. The Father is in me and I in him. In the days of the early church, before the New Testament was written and completed, the Lord Jesus also empowered his apostles and a few of their very close colleagues, such as Stephen and Philip, with sign gifts. And they, too, were for the purpose of confirming the message that Jesus Christ now was speaking through them. However, today... Now that the New Testament is complete, we have all 66 books of the Bible. Today, the confirmation of an individual's spiritual message as to whether or not he is speaking the truth of God's word or or speaking God's truth is what? How do we confirm somebody's message today? Do we ask them if they can handle a snake and not die from the poison, the venom? Absolutely. Our standard today is the word of God. We see that if it aligns with God's word. Well, of course, one of the confirmation sign gifts, and you did this in your homework in your groups today. You looked up what the Lord um, empowered his apostles to do, and it's pretty amazing, right? They could even raise the dead, couldn't they? Well, one of the gifts that he gave them was um, that they could heal. They had the gift of healing. This was to let people know that God was at work, and it meant that God was speaking through them, the apostles. They were laying the foundation for his church, so this was important. There was no New Testament yet. Well, after the Pentecost miracle of the languages, Peter, we saw, had preached the very first sermon of the church age, first gospel presentation sermon. And approximately how many people believed? How many people stepped out of Judaism into the church? 3,000. Acts 2.41. The early morning miracle was used by the Spirit to gather a crowd so that Peter could then give a message that centered on Christ and was scripture-filled, wasn't it? 
Because the scripture is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And those with ears willing to hear realized that it was indeed God speaking through his servants, Peter and the other 11 apostles. Now in Acts chapter 3, we come to the second recorded miracle of the book of Acts in verses 1 to 11. And it also is followed by a sermon Another sermon by the Apostle Peter. He gives a lot of sermons in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. What was the result of the confirming miracle and then the Christ-centered message that followed it? Well, Acts 4.4 gives us the answer. The church expanded to now include 5,000 men. And the Greek word there for men is exclusive of women and young people. So if you count them in... The church is really growing at a rapid rate, rapid growth in the early church. The Lord, remember the Lord in John 14, 12 had promised his followers that they would do even greater works than he had done? Well, this is, this is it. This is the greater works. This is just the beginning of the greater works. He is still about doing the greater works through his church 21 centuries later. Well, now we learned in the previous lesson, early church life, verses 42 to 47, that the people of Jerusalem were in reverential awe over the amazing testimony of the early believers. They were watching their their unity. They were one in mind and one in heart, single-minded, weren't they? They were together in harmony, and they had such joy, it was just spilling all over the place, and they had sincere worship. When they went to the temple to pray, pray, they weren't just saying rote prayers. It was coming from their heart. And the people could see that something was different about them. They had a love for one another. And they were in awe of that. They were also in reverential awe as they witnessed the, notice this, this is in verse 43 of chapter 2. They were in awe of the many wonders and signs done by the apostles. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 3, we find that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to only record one of those many signs and wonders that were being performed in the early days by the apostles. Now, why do you think it is that only one was inspired to be recorded for us of the many? Well, there is a reason for it. There are several This is an illustration of one of the apostolic sign miracles that was used to confirm the message, the gospel message that followed it. And there was a great gospel message that followed it, as I said, given by Peter. Also, I think the Holy Spirit honed in on this one miracle because we're going to see this as we work our way through it this morning. And it is, by the way, the healing of a beggar outside the beautiful gate, who was born lame. This miracle serves as really a cameo of the entire human race. Spiritually speaking, every one of us is born lame. None of us have any standing before God. We are all completely, as this man, helpless and hopeless to walk the righteous life apart from a transforming miracle in our lives. On our own, we cannot enter into, or through, I should say, the beautiful straight gate that leads to spiritual healing and eternal life. We are all in great poverty of soul and spirit, are we not? And we're totally dependent on the grace and the mercy of God's healing touch. The lame man's relationships, his relatives and his friends, his religion, which was a dead Judaism, and his alms receipts were completely impotent to to, uh, helping him to walk. They were all impotent. None of them could reach out a hand to help him stand up, leap up, relationships, as wonderful as they are, and religion, which is not really that wonderful, and riches are not the answer to life's dilemma of our helpless, hopeless spiritual poverty. But who is? 
Another R. I had to stick with R's. Relationships, riches, and religion. Uh Uh-uh. But the Redeemer, he is the answer and the one and only answer to our dilemma. It is only by a real relationship. And Christianity is not a religion. It's having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's only by that that any of us can rise up and walk with God. Now this man's true story, which is narrated by the great historian Luke, who was also a physician, remember? A Greek physician. This is a mini vignette of humanity. All mankind sits lame and lost outside the beautiful gate that leads to the house of the eternal God. And the one way through that gate is Christ. Is he not the way? He is the way. So let's look now at the account of how a man born lame finally, after more than 40 years of human hopelessness, entered through the beautiful gate. And you know how he entered through? Leaping. I wanted to call his leaping lizards. <laughs> I don't know why that always comes together, but that's what I was thinking. I didn't think you'd appreciate that title for the lesson, but <clears throat> he goes through the, the beautiful gate leaping and praising God. I think he was doing like David, a dance before the Lord as he enters through the beautiful gate. But before he could do that, there had to be a pre-planned meeting, one that was divinely planned in eternity past. Now, our outline for today's lesson consists of three parts. We are going to look at a pre-planned meeting, a pitiful man laying him down and lifting him up, and then we're going to look at a puzzled multitude. Because the miracle is all about getting a gathered multitude so that they can then hear the gospel. All right, a pre-planned meeting. So let's look at verses 1, 2, 3. 1, 2, 3 (laughs) of chapter 3. It says, now Peter and John went up together. They were buddies, weren't they? It's almost like a father-son relationship with these two. Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. Who died exactly at three in the afternoon? The Lord Jesus gave up the ghost. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Okay, what we have described in these verses is a divine appointment, a pre-planned rendezvous made in heaven. Now, I know that sometimes we let our conversations slip and say things like, oh, that was lucky, hmm, or... No, it was just kind of random. Young people like to say that word a lot. That's a, that's a cool word nowadays. Oh, that was just random. Uh, or a coincidence. It was a coincidence. It was coincidental or by chance. But you know what? Try to eliminate those words from your vocabulary because there is no such thing in a universe operated by a sovereign God. On this otherwise normal day in Jerusalem, there was a foreordained intersecting that took place as three men were simply going about their daily routines. You know, ever since the Lord's ascension, we learned that all the apostles, originally the 120, and that now is 3,120, were daily going to the temple to offer their worship and also to go for the three prayer times that they had at 9 in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 in the afternoon. And they would also gather there to be taught apostolic doctrine. Remember, we learned all of that. But they were going there daily. This was a daily routine. And the upper room to the temple was not that far. It was like a quarter of a mile. So it was close. They're back and forth all day long to the temple. So here they are, these two guys, John and Peter, Peter and John, headed out together to pray in the temple, in the court of the Israelites, which is where the Jewish men could go. 
That's as far as they could go, and unless they were a Levite, they could go into the court of the priest. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But And it was, of course, 3 p.m. It says it was the ninth hour, and so it was 3 in the afternoon, a special time for them because they would remember that that was the time when the Lord died precisely when they were slitting the throats and offering the Passover lambs on Passover day. Well, the third man in this setting for this divinely pre-planned meeting was an unnamed, have no idea what his name is, we'll find out in heaven, but he was an unnamed congenitally lame man. That means he was born that way. He was born lame. And he had been in that condition for over 40 years. How do I know that? Well, you look ahead at Acts 4.22. It says he was above 40 years of age. Now, based on his age, we can assume that he had been carried for many years. Uh, By whom we don't know. We're not told if it was a relative or if it was a friend or if it was somebody who was just paid to do this kind of a thing, you know, to carry lame people to to a certain place so they could beg. I don't know. But he was taken daily to a particular spot at the beautiful gate where he would then beg for alms, charitable giving, so that he could sustain himself. Now, due to the fact that Scripture does go out of its way to make sure that we know that all three of these men, Peter, John, and the lame man, were engaged in a daily routine. This was their daily habit. We can assume that their paths had crossed previously. Peter and John are going daily, you know, to the temple, and this man daily is being carried to the the beautiful gate. Their paths have crossed before. They've seen each other before. Might not have paid any attention to each other before. But on this particular day, something very different would transpire because uh, the Lord from heaven was making sure that they had a divine appointment with each other. They not only intersected on the street, so to speak, but they would intersect on this particular day in the spirit. Peter and John were to be Christ's instruments to forever change this man. His life would be changed forever throughout all of eternity because of this particular day. And that which happened in this spiritual rendezvous with that lame man, guess what? It also changed Peter and John forever. You know what happens? They perform, Peter performs really, the Lord performs the miracle through Peter. Peter then gives a sermon And this time he is interrupted. Remember the first sermon? We said it was a miracle that he wasn't interrupted. (laughs) But this second sermon, he is interrupted. And he and John are arrested. So the persecution begins. They're not going to be naive about things any longer. So they too are changed forever. The Lord God omnipotent had a planned divine appointment. The men didn't have that appointment. God did. Everything that took place from approximately 3 in the afternoon that day to eventide, which Acts 4.3 tells us that's the time that they were arrested, everything that took place was unexpected by these three men. You know, Peter and John did not wake up that morning and say to each other, oh, this is the day. Look at your calendar. Yes, this is the day that we're going to heal that lame man sitting at the beautiful gate that we walk by all the time. Today, we're going to heal him, and then later on today, uh, we're going to be arrested. <laughs> and you can be sure that the man lame from his mother's womb did not wake up that morning and um, say, oh, this is the day that I'm going to walk. <laughs> when he woke up that day, he, you could be sure he had no idea whatsoever that he faced anything other than another mundane day of being carried off to his usual spot where he would sit and he would beg from those who went in and out of the temple through the beautiful gate. He had no idea that this day would be any different from any other day. Forty years of doing this. Some of you haven't even hit 40 yet. Some of us would love to go back to 40, (laughs) but over 40 years of the same routine. But isn't that, and 
I mean, he had no idea. When I was 22 and a half years old, I had no idea that morning. Uh, it was a Friday before Easter, which would be Good Friday. I had no idea that that day was going to be any different than the other 22 and a half years worth of days of my life. <laughs> but that was the day that I had a divine appointment with people who led me to the Lord. Isn't that how God works? Isn't it oftentimes that the most amazing things in our lives occur when we least expect them? Mm-hmm. Is it not true that the Lord does things in a way also that are exceeding abundant above all that we could ask or think? I imagine this man prayed a long, long time that he could be healed, but what happened this day was exceeding abundant above anything he could have ever asked for. We do need to remember in the daily mundane routine of our lives that God is still at work. You know, all things work together for good for them that love him, that are called according to his... He's at work, even though it's a daily, sometimes we get kind of weary in well-doing day after day, but he's at work. Unlike us, you see, he is outside of time. He He lives in the past, present, and future. Now, if you can put that together in your mind, you're doing better than me. But he, he just, you know... His delays are not always denials, are they? He just works in his own time and his own schedule so that it's more for his glory and for our good. He knows a lot better about our lives and what we need in our lives than we do. I got to thinking about how long this man had been in this condition. Do you realize that if he's over 40, let's say he's about 42, okay, since it said above 40, I'm going to put him at about 42. How old was the Lord Jesus when he died just a few months before this? 33. So that means, now you have to remember that people who had a child like this often would send them out, and they still do in parts of the world today, to beg as a child. So this boy could have been carried maybe by his parents originally, well, you know, or maybe abandoned. Who knows? Um, They just had different concepts about children in those days. Um, But anyway, he could have been begging since he was about five, six, seven years old, perhaps. That means that he would have been in the temple when Mary and Joseph first brought infant Jesus to the temple for Mary's purification. He, this young, this man, when he was a young boy, could have actually, I don't know, but he could have seen Simeon pick up baby Jesus, for all we know. That's amazing to think how long he'd been doing this. He was a pitiful man. Pitiful. Let's look at verses 2 to 8 now. I mean, I'm sorry, 4 to 8. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he, this would be the lame man, gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Leaping lizards. (laughs) Well, it is true now that all physical problems are the result of living in a sin-cursed world. Yet to blame a specific disability, congenital or otherwise, something that maybe even happens later on in somebody's life, to blame that on a specific sin committed by a specific person or people is beyond our ability to determine and our authority to judge, as Job's friends did. Remember those Cheerful guys? No, Job must be the sin in your life. (laughs) 
you naughty guy, you. And he was a righteous man. I mean, I remember I tumbled down the stairs of my house one day, and I, my husband was up in the bedroom, and he heard me go, bum, 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 when I hit the bottom. And you know what he said? Must be the sin in your life. <laughs> Just like Job's friends. <laughs> so now every time he gets sick, guess what I say? Hmm. But that's not our authority to do, okay? The disciples, we know, we learned this back in John chapter 9, that the disciples themselves, the apostles, had been influenced by some of the previous theory, the uh, prevalent theories of their day. When, uh, and, and I'm going to talk about some of them, and there's more details in your notes that you'll get in the email about the theories of, of that day, about why somebody was born lame or born blind, etc., Uh, But remember, they had been influenced by this when they asked Jesus about that man born blind. They asked him, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And what was the Lord's immediate answer? He said, neither. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And he wasn't saying that none of them had sinned. We're all born in sin. You know, we have sinners by birth and sinners by choice. But he was saying that isn't the cause of his blindness, that he did perform some kind of particular sin or his parents did. The man's congenital blindness was neither a direct result of his sin or his parents' sin. Only God knows why he allows certain things to happen. We're not to be the judge. Sometimes he does something like that in order to bring someone to himself. Sometimes, as with the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, that man who had laid there for 38 years, waiting for somebody to come stir up the waters, (laughs) uh, that was for correction. We know that he was impotent for 38 years because he had sinned, because the Lord said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Sometimes it's simply the result of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Sometimes it's for spiritual growth that we have a malady of some kind. It's for our own good or for our own growth. Sometimes it is especially designed so that the works of God should be made manifest in that person. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Wow, has the Lord used that accident that day she dove into the water and broke her neck? and Has he used her mightily? What about Nick, whatever his last name is? I can never say it and remember it. Wojciech? Uh, born with no limbs, no arms, no legs. We saw that DVD on him. He has given the gospel to millions of people across this world. Did the Lord not do that for the intention of bringing him glory? One day they'll be whole. They'll be completely whole in heaven, leaping and praising God. The lame man was born, Luke the physician tells us, with a weakness in his feet and his ankles that prevented him from walking. For some four, day, four decades, this man had probably pondered over all the various prevalent theories of his day as to why he was the way he was. Now, he could have gotten bitter about it, or, you know, it, there were some really crazy theories. There was what was called the reincarnation retribution theory that the Jewish people, some of them, now the rabbis did not go along with this one, but the Jewish people picked this up when they lived in Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity. They picked up the idea of reincarnation. And so they said, ah, you were born that way because in a previous life you had been a really bad person. Then there was also the blame your parents idolatry theory. These are my own names, by the way. Blame your parents, or all the way back to the third or fourth generation. You could blame your ancestors because they had turned to false idols. Well, if that was the case, everybody in Israel just about would be born with some kind of a problem. Um, There was the you sinned in the womb theory. You naughty infant baby, prenatal baby you. And there was the future big sin preventative theory. I think I talk about some of these later, so let me just move on. <laughs> All such ideas were really silly. I mean, they were, they're, they're just not biblical, and they're not really logical, and they are very negative. And all they did was just add a heavier burden to what a person like this man was already feeling. 
uh, you know, he's already feeling like he's really different and he has to beg for a living and has low self-esteem, I'm sure. And then they say, you know, ah, you, you sinner, you in a previous life or you sinned in your mother's womb or God knew that you were going to sin, have a big sin sometime in the future. So he had you born like this so you wouldn't commit that big sin. All these things just put, didn't it, heavier burden on the poor person? Now, we can be sure that this man had long ago given up any hope for a remedy. Although, there for a while, while that miracle worker Jesus of Nazareth had been among them and had healed many people, even probably some of his acquaintances, former beggars like himself, impotent men, He probably knew that man at the pool of Bethesda who'd laid there for 38 years. He probably knew the man who had been born blind. He had healed Bartimaeus and lepers. So there for a while, this man probably had some hope. And word was widespread and very credible that this Jesus could even raise the dead. But somehow, this man had not been favored by the supernatural power of Jesus. Do you think Jesus ever walked by this man? Guaranteed. Guaranteed he did. Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple and right there at the beautiful gate. He walked by this man, but his delays are not always his denials, are they? But now for this man, and this man's thinking, Jesus was no longer around. They had crucified him. And I believe that what little hope he might have had died when Jesus died. You know, it was a custom in those days for beggars to choose one of three main locations to ask for their alms. A spot to beg was basically considered territorial. You know, beggars made claim to it. And it was taboo for another beggar to ever take your spot. That was your spot. And if this man had been there for 30-something years, at least, it, it was his spot. It had long been his spot. It was like squatter's rights, okay? The three best begging spots were at a rich man's gate. Now, we have an example of that in the scripture, don't we? Who can you think of that sat at a rich man's gate? Right, Lazarus at the gate of the rich man in Luke sixteen twenty. Also, they liked to find uh, a, to sit a spot on a highway that was leading out of a city, I don't know why they didn't prefer going into the city, but on the way out, they, I guess they figured out people were more generous leaving a city than coming in. Maybe they're thinking, and coming into the city, i got to buy this and i got to buy that. And so you know, on the way out, they're more generous because, oh, i got a little bit I didn't spend, and so they give it to the beggars. We also have an example of that. Bartimaeus sat outside the city um, of Jericho. People would leave Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. That's where Bartimaeus was sitting. Then the third place that people liked to sit was at one of the gates of the temple. To sit at a temple gate. There were ten temple gates. To sit at one of those gates was the choicest of the three locations. Because the crowds were larger and the people were generally in a more charitable frame of mind as they were entering into the house of God. You know they were going to impress God with their givings. Or some, as we know, the scribes and Pharisees would give to be seen of men, didn't they? But then, of course, there were those people who genuinely gave out of kind hearts. Now, the temple complex, I don't know, but I think most of us in America in this century don't have any idea how large, how huge, how massive this temple was, Herod's temple. It took years and years to build. It was absolutely massive. It was the length of four football fields long. That's 1,200 feet long. And it was as wide as two football fields. It was 1,200 feet by 600 feet. That's, it's massive. It consisted of a series of courtyards and terraces. The biggest courtyard was the Court of the Gentiles. It was huge. It was, you know, it was 1,600 feet by, I mean, 1,200 feet by 600 feet. And um, (laughs) this was really nice, but there were signs all over the court of the Gentiles that threatened death to any Gentile who dared to enter into the next court. You know, wasn't that really friendly of them? If you set foot into the next court, that was the end of you, if you're a Gentile. Even if you're a Gentile proselyte. Now, the next court... 
picture all these courts, and you go from one court to the next court, always up steps. So that there, you start out, and of course, Jerusalem's on a hill, and the temple's on, you know, on the top. But you enter the court of the Gentiles, and then there's steps that go up into the court of the women. That's the next court. Now, the court of the women was for Gent- I mean, Jewish Gentile, Jewish women. Okay, that's as far as Jewish women could go. Was the court of, but there'd be men that could go into the court of the women as well. The court of the women also doubled as the temple treasury. That's where those great big trumpet-shaped alms boxes were located. Then, from the court of the women, there were fifteen large, massive, huge steps that were 120 feet wide that went up into the court of the the men, court of the Israelites. All right. Now, women couldn't go into the court of the Israelites. Uh, the court of the Israelites was for Jewish men, and that's as far as they could go unless they were a priest. If they were a priest, they went up some more steps. So, you know, there's a, there's a court, then there's steps, and there's a court, and a step, and it's court, you know, and it just keeps going till you get to the court of the Israel, I mean, the priests, and in the court of the priests is your inner sanctuary. That's you know, the temple proper, way up at the top. And uh, I've got to find my place here. All right, the sanctuary building at the top was 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide at the front, and it kind of narrowed when it got to the back where the Holy of Holies was, and it was 45 feet wide at the back. But front was 75 feet, was 150 feet long, and it was 150 feet tall. I don't know if you can imagine that in your mind, but that is absolutely huge. It is huge. The um, steps, steps led up to the doorway of the, you know, now the inner sanctuary consisted of two places. It had the holy place and the holy of holies, and the veil of the temple separated the two. Now that veil had rent at the time of Jesus' death. Do you think they've mended it by now? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they had many, many women quickly sewing and putting that thing back together, and it was again hanging. Remember how massive it was? Now we understand why it was so huge. It was as thick as a man's palm, four inches thick, that veil. Anyhow, um, steps led up to the doorway to the inner sanctuary, and um, the door itself into the holy place was 70 feet tall. And it was overlaid with gold and silver. Above that massive doorway, there was a cluster of grapes. The cluster of grapes was made of pure gold. And it was so huge, you're not going to believe this, but each individual grape on that cluster was as tall as a man. Each grape, tall as a man. I mean, we are talking really big here, aren't we? Now, on the roof of the holy of, of the temple, I'm calling the temple proper the temple right now, okay? On the roof of the temple were these big golden spikes, real sharp, big spikes all over the roof. Now, do you know why they put those there? Who can guess? Somebody guessed yesterday. To prevent birds from landing on the holy building. And doing their little thing, you know. No, bir- no birds allowed on the holy temple. Now, the beautiful gate was one of ten gates into this whole temple complex. Now, they're a little bit... Some say that it went from the court of the women to the court of the Israelites. And some say that it was the gate that went into the court of the women. I don't really know. But according to the famous Jewish first century historian Josephus, the beautiful gate was 75 feet tall. 75 feet tall. Do you know what that is? That's 12 six-foot men and then one three-foot man. <laughs> and Twelve and a half men. And I don't know, you know, half a man. <laughs> a boy. There you go. Okay, very good. That's 12 men and a boy standing on top of each other. <laughs> And, and it had two doors. The beautiful gate consisted of two doors that were 30 feet wide each. It took, they say, Josephus said, it took 20 men to close the gates. Whew. 
There were nine other major gates besides the beautiful gate, but they were all overlaid with gold and silver. (laughs) The beautiful gate was called beautiful because it was covered with Corinthian bronze, which was more highly valued in that day than gold and silver. Now, the whole temple complex faced which direction? East. So what would happen when the sun came up in the morning? It would hit that brilliant bronze, and the gleam from it was just, you couldn't even look at it. It was so beautiful, beautiful. And that's why they called it the beautiful gate. Now, likely sitting on one of the steps that led up to that beautiful gate, the lame man, day after day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, asked for mercy in the form of alms. However, on this really beautiful day in his life, when he asked the very same thing of Peter and John, he received something exceeding better than silver or gold or even Corinthian bronze. Now, whether the lame man recognized Peter and John as leaders of the new sect of the Nazarene, I am not calling them Christians yet. Have you noticed that? Because they're not called Christians until Antioch, the believers at Antioch. Um, So I'm calling them early believers or the sect of the Nazarene. I'm sure that's what the Jewish people thought of them. This is a new sect, the followers of that Nazarene. Now, whether he recognized Peter and John, I don't know, but it's very likely he did. You could not be in a location such as his, right there at the beautiful gate of the temple, and not know just about everything that went on in Jerusalem, especially concerning the headline news in the Jerusalem Post of all that had transpired since the death of Jesus on Passover. Actually, I am sure he heard about Jesus even before the Passion Week. And I am sure he heard about the the resurrection of Lazarus just two miles away in Bethany that occurred only a couple weeks before Passion Week. And then I am sure he also heard about and maybe even saw the grand reception of Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and everybody was praising him and singing hallelujah, hallelujah, you know, claiming he was the Messiah. This man, you know, heard all this stuff. He was there day after day, right in the heart of the city, in the temple at the beautiful gate. It would take somebody with their head in the sand not to know all these things. And since the feast of Shavuot, did I do that right, Carol? Shavuot. (laughs) Since Pentecost, the whole city was ablaze with news about the early morning, you know, Gentile languages being spoken by the 120. In fact, if Peter spoke his first sermon as he does this second sermon that's coming up from inside the temple courts, perhaps this man had even heard Peter's first message, that first sermon. My guess would be that He knew Peter and John. He knew who they were. He recognized them. And he specifically asked them for alms. The testimony of the early believers, remember, was so inspiring that the people of Jerusalem were in reverential awe of them. These people, 3,000 of them, 3,120 and growing every day, they were coming to the temple all day long, three times a day to be taught, for prayer times, for worship. I mean, he, just, he had to have known, and Peter and John were some of the leaders. So I really think that he knew who they were. And if he did know who they were, then he probably asked them for alms, thinking that since the people, uh, the, the new sect of the Nazarene had such a wonderful reputation, and they were in favor with the people, that if anybody was going to be kind to the, him that day, it would be these two guys, Right? I mean, that might be his thinking. And he was absolutely right. If anybody was going to be kind to him, it was going to be them. And, but again, exceeding abundant. 
Well, Peter and John were told, both of them, not just Peter, but Peter with John, fastened their eyes on the man. And the Greek word for fastening is the exact same word that is used in Acts 1.10 to describe the steadfast gaze upward, even after the Lord Jesus had disappeared from his men when he ascended up into heaven and a cloud took him away from their view. What were they doing? (laughs) They were fastening their eyes on still on the heavens. That's the same word that is used here. When they fastened their eyes on the lame man, it means that they riveted their gaze on him. Apparently, the Holy Spirit simultaneously led Peter and John to lock eyes on this man. Both of them at the same time. That's the work of the Spirit. Why? Well, obviously, because the Lord Jesus from heaven's throne was at work daily adding to his church. And it was this man's day to enter his church. He is the one who directed the eyes of Peter and John on this man on this particularly beautiful day. They said to the man, look on us. They were going to redirect him from his thoughts concerning his daily physical need for silver to thoughts concerning his spiritual eternal need for the Savior, from silver to the Savior. Because Peter and John were living a spirit-filled life, they could say, look on us. Hmm, are we able to say that? Are you able to say that today as an individual Christian? Look on me. Look at me. Are we able to say that in our local churches? Look at our church. Look at us. We're spirit-filled. We're living the life of Christ. Are we able to say to the world as a church universal, look on us? Are we reflecting him so well that others see him in us? Peter and John wanted the lame man to see Jesus. But because Jesus was now gone, the man first needed to see Jesus in them. And the lame man did what they asked. He looked upon them. That means he didn't just glance at them and then, you know, have his eyes darting around to see who else he could ask alms from. He focused directly on them. He did what they asked. Now that they had stopped and spoken to him, he was expecting to receive something from them. Okay, I'm going to focus on you guys. Hand out, you know. But he would not get what he expected. He expected money. What did he get? A miracle. Peter now takes over completely from here on. We don't hear a word from John. You know, whoever is with Peter is always quiet, right? (laughs) I think there's one exception, and that's when Peter and Paul are together. But uh, Peter is older than John, so Peter, and he's, of course, you know, the God's anointed spokesman, so he takes over. And he begins by saying to the man these famous words, silver and gold have I none, which probably disheartened the poor guy. You know, when he heard that, oh, (laughs) I've heard that before. (laughs) after 40 years, I've heard that. But Peter didn't stop. Either his focused look at the man or his seeming excuse to the man and simply walk away. You know, over the course of of the years, the man would have gotten used to hearing an excuse like that and people just walking on by or just completely ignoring him. But Peter didn't stop with the words, silver and gold have I none. He went on to say, but such as I have, I give thee. You know, the apostles were not rich, were they? They didn't have any silver or gold. He, he says that. Remember when the Lord Jesus sent them out on that first mission trip without him in pairs? And he said, don't even carry a script. A script was like a man's pocketbook. <laughs> it was a flat bag that they carried their food in or what little money they had. And when Jesus sent them out on that first mission first mission trip without him, he said, don't take silver or gold with you. That's not what I want you to give to the people. What do I want you to give? Something much greater than silver or gold. 
give them the message about me. So they, weren't, they were not rich men, at least in material things, but they had something far more valuable than silver or gold, did they not? You know what? You might not have a lot in this life, materially speaking, but if you know the Lord Jesus, you are rich. You are so much richer than most of the world. I like to call these people, these men, poor rich men. They were rich with the power of God in their lives. And so are we. You know, let's live the resurrected life of our Savior. You might be poor, but you are so rich in Christ. Well, at this point, the lame man might have wondered what it would be that Peter said he would give him. Wouldn't that be your thinking? Okay, I wonder if I'm going to get a chunk of bread. Not quite as good as silver or gold. Or maybe he has a piece of fruit in his pocket or something. Uh, But before he had much time to contemplate what the man might give him, suddenly Peter gave him a shocking command. I mean, totally just like out of the blue, a command that the man must just... He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Woo! Now, using the words, in the name of, Peter was in effect saying, I command this of you by virtue of the authority and the person and the power of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And just in case you don't know which Jesus that is, the one of Nazareth, from Nazareth. Without a shadow of a doubt, this man knew about Jesus. All of Jerusalem knew about Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, as I said, since Pentecost, he saw with his own eyes, there in the temple complex, that some 3,000 Jewish pilgrims from all kinds of different lands of the diaspora had not returned to their homes The spring feasts were over, but they stayed around. They were still there. In fact, they were daily gathering in the temple for prayer and instruction about Jesus. Don't you think maybe he overheard some of that apostolic instruction? Strange indeed that so many really devout Jews who were now so joyous, 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 I'll get it right eventually, that they, these happy, happy, sincere, loving people, actually believed that Jesus had risen from the grave. Strange. If the lame man had not sensed something different going on, then when Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, he likely would have gotten very angry and said something like, stop trying to be funny. Stop mocking me. I was born like this. And every physician around will tell you, there's no way I can walk. No way. My feet and my ankles could not even support my toddler weight. They certainly cannot support my adult weight. So go away. I don't find you funny at all. The lame man, however, had listened well. He sat there day after day after day, heard people going by, talking about Jesus, talking about all the things that I think he listened very well. He had heard for years the talk of those who passed by and discussed Jesus. He now heard the power of that name spoken from Peter's lips. And he heard the authority of Jesus in Peter's command. He had looked. They asked him to look at them. And he had looked. And he had listened. And soon he would be, got it, leaping. Looked. Listen, soon he would be leaping. Do you know when he heard that command in the name of Jesus Christ, he put his faith in that name. 
How do I know that? Look with me at Acts 4.16. Peter's sermon. Peter says, and in his name, through faith in his name, that's Christ's name, hath made this man strong. Yes, this man had faith when he heard. He had heard about Jesus for years. Now he put his faith in Jesus. Whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yes. Oh, I did. I'm sorry. Oh, 316, not, not 416. I'm sorry. I wondered why you were turning pages. <laughs> I heard all those pages. I thought, it's right there. What's the matter with you guys? <laughs> Acts 316, 316. Did you know, uh, well, you know, remember as, as one time Peter himself had been lifted up by the strong and mighty hand of Jesus? Remember when Peter was sinking in a stormy sea, how he reached forth and took hold of, of Jesus' hand? You know, Peter in faith, great faith. He stepped out of the boat onto the stormy sea. But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, blah, 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 and help, save me. And Jesus reached forth and lifted him up. Well, now Peter is doing that for the lame man. He reaches forth and he took the man's right hand. Now, the man could have done this, right? But he didn't. He let Peter take it, and it says Peter lifted him up, and what was the result? Immediately. This is how God heals, okay? Immediately. His feet and his ankle bones received strength, and he leaping up stood and walked and entered with him into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. Wow, do you realize what kind of miracle this is? Do This is a recreative miracle of the man's whole leg, you know, not just his feet, his ankles, his leg bones, all the way up, muscles, everything, tissues. My daughter, my oldest daughter, who is a nurse, I called her and I said, what would happen, you know, after a while? Wouldn't this guy's legs have atrophied? Oh, she said, yeah, absolutely. Her son, my, first, my oldest grandson, David, has this tendency to break his legs. I don't, you know, he just... He's nine, and he looks like he's 14, and he's just, he, he's clumsy because he's so big. <laughs> and he was on the trampoline a month ago and broke his leg again. And um, he had the cast on for four weeks. When they took it off already, she said one leg was smaller than the other. You know, 40 years of not walking, your, your legs, she said the bones would be deformed. The feet would have, Peggy, you would know this, being a nurse and whoever, um, foot drop is it called? Yeah, the, the feet would just, and, and she said, turn inward. The muscles would be, the, the whole system would be atrophied. You did this just, but how does he, how does he get up when Peter pulls him up? Leaping. You know, I can't even leap out of bed in the morning. I get up and I just, ah, it takes me a while to. <laughs> this is an incredible miracle. It is absolutely phenomenal. And the miracle was instantaneous. The man's feet, his ankles, legs, everything was instantly made whole. It was an apostolic miracle. Peter didn't say to the man, okay, you know, now hold on to me. Take a little baby step tomorrow. Take two baby steps and an aspirin. And, and then in a month or so... Maybe you'll be walking with a walker, but leaping, you know, I don't think that might ever be in the picture. But just be happy if you can walk with a walker. <laughs> think This man had never taken a step in his entire life. Even children who are born with no deformities in their bones need to learn how to walk, Right? You know, they start out usually crawling, and then they start pulling up, and then they take those first little steps, and pretty soon they're running, and you're chasing after them. <laughs> but this man had not, he, you know, he not only could walk, but he knew how to walk. It takes kids a while to learn how to skip, too, doesn't it, and jump? But he instantly knew how to leap and run, and I think he's dancing all the way to the temple. 
No pain, you know, no slow rising, no remedial learn how to walk classes for him. It's just a, a wonderful. Isn't it wonderful that the lame man also knew to whom the praise went? Did you notice that he did not kiss the hand of Peter? Hmm. Didn't even kiss his ring. If you catch my drift. He, he didn't praise Peter. I'm sure I know that he thanked. It says he was holding on to them. He's hugging them and thanking them. You know he thanked them. But who got the praise? God got the praise. Well, a puzzled multitude, um, real quick, we're, we're almost finished, verses 9 to 11. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. The Lord had planned from before the foundation of the world to use this lame man to bring glory to himself, to bring the man to faith in his son, and to use this miracle wrought in him for the further expansion of his church. What do you think became of this former lame man? That's going to be one of your homework questions. It's called a personal creative because we don't know. But mine would be that he went on to spend the remainder of his years being a missionary to other beggars like him. Mm, It just gives me goosebumps to think about. You know he spent the rest of his life serving his Lord. More than 40 years being lame made this miracle more amazing to both the man and the people who knew him. And it definitely brought greater glory to God, did it not? Just like when Jesus waited for Lazarus to be dead four days in the tomb, it brought more glory to God. The fact that the man had been positioned in such a prominent place for so long ensured that the people knew him. You know, when the man born blind was healed, remember the neighbors were scratching their head and they said, hmm, is that the blind man? I don't know. It looks like him, but I can't really be sure. Remember how they were puzzled? Because I think, you know, if you're blind and then you see there's something different about your countenance. But this lame man had the same, you know, he looked the same. Everybody had been there. For some people, he'd been there since eternity passed, you know. I was a little kid. He was there. He's still there. He's been there forever. Everybody knew this lame man. There was no doubt at all. And so when they see him suddenly leaping and running and jumping and skipping and hopping and praising and dancing, they undoubtedly and assuredly knew that a miracle had taken place, right? And so they're curious, and they gather, they, they run, they follow Peter, John, and the man, man and they, they gather together at Solomon's porch, and that's, of course, where Peter is going to give the sermon that we'll look at when you come back from our Resurrection Day break. But what was the reaction of the miracle? I want to just point out some of the words that Luke was inspired to use. He says that they were filled with wonder and amazement in Greek. Those two words are, wonder is thambos. It's a cute word, isn't it? Thambos, wonder. Amazement, this will be familiar, ecstasis. Ecstasis. Wonder, thambos, means to be stricken motionless or riveted to the spot. It's just like, ah, that's the lame man. Can't believe it. You know, you're just riveted. Jaw hanging open. Ecstasies is where we get our word ecstasy. It's exalted delight that just tickles you from your head to your toes. You're just tickled all over. You're so happy and delighted for someone. Verse 11 says that the people ran together to Solomon's porch and they were greatly wondering. That's a combination of the two words. Ek thambos. It means they were immensely riveted and delighted and curious as to how this amazing miracle had come to pass. And then in verse 12, which is going to be part of our next lesson, Peter asked the people why they were marveling and why they were looking so earnestly on them. 
So the descriptive words of the people that the Holy Spirit poured out in verses 10, 11, and 12 communicate the effect of this miracle. And it was spectacular. But why did God use the miracle? To gather the people together in order to hear the message. The miracle would confirm that the message was truly God speaking. And so just as Peter answered their first marveling and amazement over the languages that were spoken by the 120. Remember when they said, what meaneth this? He stood up to explain it. He is going to now stand up to explain how this man, who had been lame for over 40 years, was now jumping and leaping. So the miracle led to the message. The message led to fruit. Great fruit, but it also led to something else for the first time. It led to persecution. So there's a pattern, and now entering into the pattern is also persecution. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of this story of this lame man and this beautiful day in his life that changed him for all of eternity because you reached down using one of your servants and touched his life. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us would be sensitive to those divine appointments that you put into our lives. Nothing is random. Nothing is by coincidence. You put people across our paths so that we might be used by you. So help us to be spirit-filled and to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us for a reason for the hope that is in us. And oh, do we have hope. We have sure hope, true foundational hope. We don't build our, we have not built our lives on sinking sand, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the resurrection season we are going into. May we be salt and light and and share with everybody the truth of the fact that you are Jesus, the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in you will not die, but will live forever. As you live, we shall live also. We love you, Jesus. Be with every woman. Bring us all back safely and healthy together in two weeks. For we ask these things in your blessed name. Amen.